This year, COP27 has been a mixed bag, as the world grapples with the burden of decarbonisation amidst an energy crisis. Industry, banking and finance are bringing solutions to the table. However, there is still a great deal of resistance and clearly insufficient action to meet net zero goals. To cut through all the talk and get into the nitty gritties of COP27 and the key takeaways for the energy sector, my colleague Yusuf Latif spoke to Bertrand Picard, chair of the Solar Impulse Foundation, United Nations Ambassador for the Environment and Special Advisor to the European Commission. I'm Pamela Larg, and this is the Energy Transitions Podcast. Today we are joined with Bertrand Picard, explorer, psychiatrist and environmentalist, the first to complete a non-stop balloon flight around the globe. Hello, Mr. Picard. How are you? Hello. I do better than the world. Huh? The world is really in trouble and we try to cope with that and make it better. Absolutely. And on that note, I want to ask you, you've been attending COP27 for the last week and more. How has COP27 been so far? What are some of the key takeaways for you that have caught your attention? I think there are two COPs. One COP is the official COP with the heads of state, minister, negotiators. And it's very slow because they always repeat the same speech since 20 years. They, they remind to everyone the list of problems that we all know by heart. And then they say we have to do something, but without saying how to do it and what to do. So it's very discouraging. And they also believe that all the commitments that they have to take is detrimental to their economical development and, and employment. So they all resist instead of understanding that there are solutions, that the solutions are profitable, and that we can move much faster. And this is what happens in the second cup, the cup of the private sector, of the NGOs, where actually things are moving much faster than at the political level. That's a very interesting comparison to make. You also attended COP26. How have the two conferences for you compared in terms of results, expectations, focuses, and most importantly, I think, the sense of urgency concerning net zero? In Glasgow for COP26, there was a last-minute change that destroyed completely the result of the COP when the countries said that they wanted to reduce coal rather than to get rid of coal. And that was a last-minute change that was a disaster for the overall result. But nevertheless, there has been a lot of coalitions of countries or big corporations in terms of fighting deforestation, fighting methane, funding clean technologies. And that was very positive. And I see exactly the same thing here. Really, not a lot of ambition in the political negotiation, especially because the countries of the South have one goal that is even more important than fight climate change. It is to get compensation for the loss of damage that have been made over the years by the industrial countries. And they want to get the $100 billion that have been promised a couple of years ago, which is not coming at the pace it should come. But nevertheless, although there is resistance here, I see a lot of solutions coming from the financial system, from the banking system, from the industries, a lot of solutions. And we are here for that with the Solar Impulse Foundation. Basically, we are really here to show 
what are the solutions that can be used in a profitable way to create jobs and to fight climate change. You mentioned about how at COP26 in Glasgow, there was the reducing coal, not completely getting rid of coal, which kind of created a lot of disappointment for people. And I was going to ask, has this affected how people have gone into COP27 and their expectations going in? But it sounds like things are more positive. Would you say things are more positive or more negative in terms of expectations, in terms of how people are feeling about the results so far? Well, honestly, the people who come to COP come because they try to contribute to make a good result, but they have less expectations every year. And this is a pity. And I want to explain you really what I think about all these COPs. In the COP, the main focus is about decarbonization, how to reduce CO2 emissions. So a lot of countries see this as a burden. They see this as an obstacle for the development. They think, well, if we have to decarbonize, it's going to be very expensive. We should do it exactly the other way around. We should put the economical development first. And how to improve the economical development, especially for the developing world, how to increase the employment for the young people. It is by introducing a notion of efficiency in everything we do. Efficiency means that we can obtain a better result by reducing the amount of energy or resources of waste that we are producing. If you are more efficient, you protect the environment, you reduce emissions, but you also save so much money that you can put this money into the investment for the efficiency to make a positive flying wheel, and this will create jobs and this will assure local development. And as a secondary effect, it will reduce the CO2 much better. So to summarize, if you want to reduce CO2 as a burden, you will not succeed. But if you focus on the efficiency, which is good for economical development, you will save the natural resources, you will save energy, save the waste, and you will decarbonize much better. And this is what I believe the countries should do here. Instead of arguing on how to decarbonize, they should put on the table all the solutions to make our world much more efficient and help each other in a real partnership to see how they can implement all these solutions as fast as possible for the benefit of all the countries. Thank you. That's excellent stuff. And I definitely agree with all of those points. Do you think that in terms of the commitments that are being made from governments, in terms of the pleas, the pledges, etc., are there definitive action plans being put on the table to make progress on the 1.5 degree goal? Not enough. Not enough because you have some countries who have understood that it's an advantage for their economy to decarbonize, and you have other countries who have not understood that and they resist. So when you have, like in the COP, the goal of having an unanimous decision, of course, the ambition is aligned with the least ambitious. This is always like this. But when you look for a majority, then you can have much more ambitious goals. But the UN process in the COP is to have an unanimous agreement, which is never ambitious enough. And that's why I believe that there is a lot of frustration. But this frustration has a good side effect. It brings enough energy for the people to react, to say, if the governments are not able to do enough, we're going to do ourselves. We're going to do it. We're going to do it at our local level, like in the cities. 
We're going to make it at the local level or in our company. And a lot of corporations have understood that fighting climate change is a business opportunity because they are bringing new solutions on the market. They are bringing ways to save energy and it's profitable to sell the products that save energy. It is profitable to sell the process and the industry to recycle the waste into, for example, construction stones or furniture or gravel to take all the old tires and use them as sleepers for railroad to install renewable energy in the places that are off-grid where people have no access to electricity. All this is simultaneously an economical development and an ecological transition. So the one who understand that are making coalitions, they are moving fast, and the others, which is a pity, are losing the opportunity, losing this opportunity, and they stay in the incumbent status quo with all processes, with all the industry, with all sources of energy, and they lose money. Not only they pollute, but they lose money. I want to grip onto your mention of energy. Our audience is, of course, focused on the energy and power sectors. What has COP27 highlighted so far about the current situation regarding energy, specifically when it comes to balancing the need for energy security with the drive for decarbonization? There is the short term and the long term. On the short term, I think all the countries are closing themselves because they're afraid of the energy crisis. They're afraid of the inflation. They're afraid not to have enough Russian gas. And as a result, they reopen coal mines. They reopen coal power plants, which is in complete contradiction with their ecological pledges. So we see that a lot of people have not understood that the answer to the Russian gas problem and the answer to the climate crisis is exactly the same or should be exactly the same. It is renewable energies and it is energy efficiency. You save energy so much that renewable sources are enough. And when we speak about energy savings, you have to know that in the world, three quarters, three quarters, it's a lot, of the energy that is produced is lost just because of old systems, old processes, outdated systems, and inefficient infrastructures. So we need to modernize our world and modernize our world to get rid of the dependency on the Russian gas, modernize our world to get rid of the emissions that are destroying the climate, and also getting rid of the pollution that is poisoning 8 million people per year with air pollution. So we see that it can be a win-win-win, and if we don't understand that, it's a lose-lose-lose. I want to go back and just briefly talk again about, you mentioned the two sides of COP, the private versus the government, or rather the public angles towards the energy transition. And it sounds like what you're saying is that there's far more momentum behind the private sector, or at least far more willingness behind the private sector to meet 1.5 within the energy industry. Is there more you can kind of say in this regard? Yes, I agree. Maybe the goal is the same for everyone, is to be carbon neutral in 2050. But the private sector is, I believe, from what I see here, much more active than the countries to do it. Maybe with an exception, the European Commission and the European Parliament are very active in the way of efficiency, new legislations, new rules to be more efficient and to use more renewable energies. 
But maybe it's because they are not directly elected by the people, you know. They have no answer to give to the population. They do what they think is good. And the control is made at a higher level. But when you are directly elected by the people, by the population, then sometimes you're afraid to change the things. You're afraid to make big steps toward new legislations because you're afraid that the population will not understand and will not re-elect you. So there is this dimension when we see that upper levels can be more ambitious, maybe, than national levels. Absolutely. And the European Commissioner for Energy, Kadri Simpson, quite recently released a statement regarding the energy transition and what's needed in terms of mandates, etc. Do you think, though, that the European Union has more momentum, more drive for net zero because of the threat presented by Russia, by the energy crisis? Or did that just compound a storm that was already perfect? The European Commission and the European Parliament are active in fighting climate change already since, what I would say, 15 years. 15 years, they put ambitious goals. And the Russian gas crisis is more of an handicap for this commitment than a help. Because now they are panicking and they try to see how to solve the short-term energy needs instead of being more efficient and to install more renewables. They are starting to reopen coal mines and coal power plants. But nevertheless, you know, Europe is ambitious in that goal. I admire very much what has been done here. But it's only 9%, 9% of the CO2 emissions of the world. So we're not going to save the world, even if Europe does it perfectly. And from a policy perspective, when it comes to what's really needed, has there been talk of mandates from different countries, from different bodies about really getting things done? The discussions are always on the goal, arguing on the goal. Do we decarbonize 30% by 2030 or 45% or 40%? It's always a goal without giving the way to reach the goal. The only thing interesting is how to reach a goal. It's not just setting a goal. Otherwise, we will wait until 2029 to see what happens in 2030 because nobody knew how to solve the problem. So what is missing today is clearly the roadmap on how to implement the solutions in the spirit of collaboration, in the spirit of partnership, in the spirit of just transition. I give you the example for developing countries. Developing countries are getting poorer and poorer every year because they have to use foreign currencies, that means dollars, to import gas, coal, or oil. And for their commercial balance, it's a disaster. But if the development aid was investing into local renewable sources of energy, they would be able to be more independent. It would be safer, much better for the economical balance, commercial balance. And also it would create a lot of jobs locally. It will help the regions that are off the grid to develop themselves. So we have to go out of the centralized production of energy into a delocalized production of energy that can give access to energy to everyone without the need to pull power lines, without the need to install very expensive power plants. You know, this is what people have to understand. If you put in a region that has no electricity, some solar cells, a battery, 
a pump for irrigation and some lights and electric plugs to charge the smartphones, you have a situation where you have suddenly an economical development in the country. You have an economical development in the village and you have local jobs and you have less poverty and you have a complete positive cycle that starts. But as long as we believe that renewable energies are more expensive, that it's a burden or whatever, it won't work. Things won't be done. We will increase poverty. We will increase the CO2 emissions and we will lose the opportunities. In terms of the goal, in terms of a roadmap, based on your experience, what's being taken away, what you've been taking away from COP27, do you think that achieving net zero is now more or less realistic as we go ahead? And why? I'm sorry to say that, but it becomes less and less realistic to reach net zero by 2050 because the emissions are still increasing in the world. It's still increasing, which means that the percentage we have to decrease will become bigger and bigger each year, which means more and more difficult. If we don't reduce each year from now on, the steps each year will be much bigger in the years before 2050. If we do nothing until 2049, we have to do 100% in one year, which of course is not realistic, but I show you that to show you what is the amplitude of the problem. So if we were on a track where it's really showing a decrease of the emissions, where we really implement more renewable energies than fossil fuels, then I would say there is a big hole. But today, we don't see that momentum. We don't see it. That's a little bit disheartening to hear, I will admit. Between now and COP28, what do you think are the key priorities that we really need to focus on, both overarching and for energy specifically? The COP28 in Dubai is supposed to be the cup of solutions. Finally, people are speaking of solutions. But I don't know if it will really enter into the speeches and into the actions. Because we know since more than five years at the Solar Impulse Foundation that there are hundreds and hundreds of solutions everywhere. For water, for energy, for mobility, for construction, industry, agriculture, waste management, circular economy. They are all existing solutions. They are all economically profitable. They are all protecting the environment. And nevertheless, when I speak to ministers of the environment or ministers of energy at the COP or even heads of state, they don't know about these solutions, although it's public. So there is a lack of knowledge. There is a complete gap between what people do and what they should do, between what they know and what they should know. And communication in that sense is very, very important. This is why I give so many interviews, because each time I hope that some of the heads of states, ministers of member of parliaments will hear or read these interviews and will say, wow, there are things we don't know. Maybe we have to get the information a little more and include these information, include these solutions into our roadmaps. Well, I can promise that if I come across a head of state, I will punt our podcast for them to listen to. Solutions are definitely needed. Fully agree on that part. And I want to ask again, what is needed to turn COP28 into a COP for solutions? Do you have any ideas? Do you see any priorities about what needs to be the focus for the next year? Yes, the focus, I believe, is to show what is the economical profit 
that all the countries can make out of the climate solutions. And here again, I repeat that as long as fighting climate change is seen as a burden and an economical obstacle, people won't do it. But if you show all the solutions that can reduce the CO2 emissions, reduce the air pollution, reduce the loss of biodiversity, reduce the depletion of natural resources, and at the same time allow to make profit and create jobs, then these solutions will become attractive. And this is really the focus on all our action at the Solar Impulse Foundation, the focus of all the bilaterals I have with ministers and heads of state. But I hope it will come as one of the main theme of the COP28, really the economical profitability of all the solutions that protect the environment and fight climate change. Absolutely. And hopefully we can host another podcast next year and do a bit of a catch up on where things are and how things have compared. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit more about your explorations. I would definitely describe you as an intrepid explorer. How have the different places you've been to across the world differed in terms of their energy systems, their energy challenges, and the priorities that they really focus on? It was fascinating to see the gap between what we were able to achieve with solar impulse and the situation of the countries we were overflying. When I was flying over an oil tanker with a solar-powered airplane, that was really the contrast between the old world and the new world. And when I was flying with no noise, no pollution, no fuel, I could stay in the air day and night as long as I wanted. It really, for me, was like a revelation because I was not in the future. I was in what the current technologies allowed me to be. That's the present. And then I understood how much the rest of the world was in the past. All the countries are overflying, even rich countries. They're completely in the past. You know, they use thermal engines which waste three quarters of the energy just because they're inefficient, because it's an old technology. When my electric motors had 97% of efficiency, I was losing only 3%. The buildings below me were so badly insulated that they were losing all the energy outside with inefficient heating, cooling, and lighting systems, old industrial processes, dirty ways to burn energy. And you know, All the technologies we use today, all the infrastructures, all what we deal with for construction, mobility, industry, agriculture, all that was invented 100 years ago at the beginning of the oil era. So today, I really think that what we need to do is to modernize our world. Modernize. Just make it modern. It's not a question of making the world like in the future. It's a question of bringing the world from the past to the present. And this is where we have solutions. This is where we have clean energies. This is where we have a lot of processes. This is where the industry is keen to invest. This is where we can make a better world. And this is also what the politicians have to understand. So finally, when I was flying on solar impulse around the world, I was in the real demonstration of what the world of today can be. Clean and efficient absolutely everywhere. I love that image you drew there of flying with zero sound, zero emissions, and everything just working out the way it should. 
on that note from your experiences, what have been some of the most exciting clean energy technologies you've come across that you really think won't be needed for net zero? A lot about storage. You know, we think that intermittent energies will not work, solar and wind, because sometimes there's no wind, no solar, and it's wrong. You can store the heat into the ground, for example. Really interesting technology. You have coils going inside the streets, which are usually quite dark. So it heats up the coil and it brings the heat 200 meters underground. And in winter, you can get that heat back to make sanitary water or heating the houses. You can also store the intermittent energy into pumping storage. It's quite logical, but a lot of people don't know about it. You have two lakes, two dams at different heights. And when you have a lot of intermittent renewable energy, you pump the water up from the down lake to the up lake. And when you need electricity, you put the water back down to the bottom lake and going through turbines and producing electricity. This is a fascinating way to put together storage and solar or wind power. Another thing that is really interesting is all the way to heat or cool down buildings with a reduction of 80% of the energy bill through geothermia and heat pumps. When you reduce by 80% your energy bill, you make a lot of profit. Then you have uh, extremely interesting things also to manage the waste. You can turn all the unrecyclable waste into construction stones or gravel, for example. And all the agriculture waste in the dairy industry also, in the farms, you can turn that into biogas. So here again, instead of having waste, instead of losing potential, you are using in an efficient way all the resources we have. And this is also a way to give access to energy and to profit to the poorest farmers. You have a lot of people who cannot even make a living out of farming and producing crops. But if you give them a way to conserve their harvest with a solar dryer, for example, they make more profit. And then they use the waste from agriculture into biofuel or into biogas. And they make additional profit. And like this, you have no losses. You are just in an efficient chain. And this is what we have to understand. We are losing all these opportunities because we have a linear economy. We produce, we consume, we throw away. Instead of having a system where we produce, we use, we reuse, we recycle, we give a second life, we give a second use, and things like that. So you see, what we need to do, I tell you, is to be logical as much as ecological. Because what is missing today is also common sense. I love that saying we need to be logical as much as ecological. Thank you for that. And you're kind of painting this circular economy, but also a type of Venn diagram where everything can meet in the middle and should meet in the middle. And what that says to me is ensuring a just transition, that a just transition can happen. 15 years ago, the World Energy Council invented the term energy trilemma, which consists obviously of net zero, energy security, access to energy. And so when it comes to ensuring these three and really ensuring a just energy transition, do you think enough is being done? No, not at all, because we still believe that renewable energies are difficult to use, that they are too expensive, 
well, people are not up to date with the reality of technology. And uh, this is a pity, really a pity. In that case, what more do you think is needed? Do you have examples to perhaps illustrate your point? What I always say now is that when it's the green activists who are asking for a change, it creates usually a lot of resistance from the economy, from the industry, who have maybe other concerns than just protecting the environment. Also resistance from countries who have their national interest to defend. And an example of that is when George Bush Jr., president of the U.S. in the 90s, was saying there is no ecological rules that are going to decrease the economical development of the United States. You know, it's a big misunderstanding. So today what I am asking is to listen not just to the green activists, but to listen to the financial world, to listen to the industry, to all the corporations who have understood where are the opportunities for economical development. And we have to listen to NGOs who have made a tremendous work in showing how we can develop the poorest countries thanks to the new technologies, thanks to new opportunities that they can take. Otherwise, it will not work. So I'm always asking for the economical and the financial and industrial world to be the ambassadors of the need of change and to ask to the governments, those are the decisions you have to take. Those are the actions you have to introduce. And one action that countries really have to introduce much more is now to reinforce the efficiency standards and the norms. You know, as long as the regulations allow people to pollute, allow people to be inefficient, of course people will pollute and be inefficient because if you criticize them, they will just answer, we're following the rules, what we do is legal. So it should not happen like that. We should have rules now, legal framework, that clearly prevents to pollute, to waste, to be inefficient, and oblige the new technologies to come on the market. You know, for example, you have in the chimney of every factory, you have smoke going out. But it's not only smoke, it's also heat. But you have no rule that oblige the factories to recover that heat. And there are technologies that allow to do it easily now. And it's very profitable because reducing the loss of heat is also reducing the energy bill. So if you have no rules to oblige the industry to recover the heat, if you have no rules that oblige the buildings to be better insulated or to use the most efficient heating or cooling systems, nothing will change. Absolutely agreed. Thank you so much for that. There are two more questions I would like to ask before we have to sign off. And it's just to get a bit more idea about really what motivates you regarding your work, regarding the industry. And the first is, when you think about the energy industry, what really excites you? It's things that are of promise that have really been shown to make a difference, to have momentum, that have promise and drive behind them. Well, what drives me is the frustration that things don't move fast enough. The lack of implementation of the solutions that exist, you see? And this frustration drives me. So now the sources of optimism is, for example, when I see that now the solar and the wind energy have become the cheapest sources of energy in the world. The cheapest, without any subsidies. Fascinating to see that in Portugal, for example, 
we have the world record for the cheapest solar electricity, which is 1.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Nobody can beat that with nuclear, with gas, with coal or with fuel or oil. So this is giving hope because really the energy to protect the environment are the cheapest one today. And on that note, and in contrast, what worries you? You mentioned the sense of frustration with things not proceeding as fast as they clearly need to proceed. Is that something that worries you or is that something that you're assured will resolve itself as the years roll by? What worries me a lot is the fact that there are a lot of administrative and bureaucratic rules that favor the status quo. You know, it's always easier to do what has always been done than to do something new. And the rules allow people to be lazy. We need pioneers. We need explorers. We need innovators that act and think differently. But this is a very small minority of the population. The population is, is afraid of change. The population is betting on the existing solutions. They want to prolong the status quo as long as they can. This creates a lot of resistance, and this frightens me a lot. Because now, today, the problem is not technical anymore. It's purely psychological. Thank you so much. On that note, that is the end of my questions. Thank you so much for joining us, for speaking to us about COP27, about your thoughts, about what's needed. It's all been very, very interesting. I can say that without a doubt. And before we finish off, is there anything else you would like to mention? I hope that I can bring better news in the next COP. I hope we'll have another recording where I can give you examples of all these solutions that are now implemented and all the solutions that we have now on the website of Solar Impulse, which is solarimpulse.com, all the solutions that we have in the guide of solutions for cities, all these solutions can really go much faster to implementation. If I can give you this big good news next year from COP28 in Dubai, I would be elated. And I would definitely be elated myself. I can say that without a doubt. And hopefully, here's to a year from now. Thank you so much for joining us, Bertrand. It's been absolutely a delight to speak to you. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the day and the rest of the conference. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to you. And thank you for your interest for all these solutions. It was great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time. Thank you.